0: Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be reading and discussing Chapter 3 of the Lotus Sutra. The Lotus Sutra is one of the most transformative and important texts in all of Buddhism. The earliest copies of it that we have are Chinese translations from the 3rd century CE. Today we will be using the Burton-Watson translation into English. Most scholars argue that the Lotus Sutra text was originally composed in four phases. The first phase was the composition of the poetic verse portions of chapters 2 through 9, then the prose portions of those chapters then chapter 1 and chapters 10 through 22, excluding chapter 12, and then finally chapters 23 through 27, chapter 12, and chapter 28. This text argues that instead of the commonly held three vehicles to Buddhahood, namely the paths of the Pratyeka Buddhas, the Sravakas, and the Bodhisattvas, there is actually one vehicle that subsumes all of them. If you remember, the Pratyeka Buddhas are the solitary Buddhas who do not hear the teaching to attain Buddhahood the Shravakas are the Theravada monks, and the Bodhisattvas are the Mahayana practitioners who seek to save all sentient beings. According to the text, the path that supersedes all of these is the Buddha vehicle. This is exemplified by the famous Parable of the Burning House, which we will be reading today. We hope you enjoy. At that time, Shariputra's mind danced with joy. Then he immediately stood up, pressed his palms together, gazed up in reverence at the face of the Honored One, and said to the Buddha, Just now, when I heard from the World Honored One this voice of the law, my mind seemed to dance and I gained what I had never had before. Why do I say this? Because in the past, when I heard a law of this kind from the Buddha, and saw how the Bodhisattvas received prophecies that in time they would attain Buddhahood, I and the others felt that we had no part in the affair. We were deeply grieved to think that we would never gain the immeasurable insight of the Thus Come One. World-honored one, I have constantly lived in the mountain forest or alone under the trees, sometimes sitting, sometimes walking around, and always I have thought to myself, since I and the others all alike have entered into the nature of the law, why does the thus-come one use the law of the lesser vehicle to bring us salvation? But the fault is ours, not that of the world-honored one. Why do I say this? If we had been willing to wait until the true means for attaining Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi was preached, then we would surely have obtained release through the Great Vehicle. But we failed to understand that the Buddha was employing expedient means and preaching what was appropriate to the circumstances. So when we first heard the law of the Buddha, we immediately believed and accepted it, supposing that we had gained understanding. World-honored one, for a long time now, all day and throughout the night, I have repeatedly taxed myself with this thought. But now, I have heard from the Buddha what I had never heard before, a law never known in the past, and it has ended all my doubts and regrets. My body and mind are at ease, and I have gained a wonderful feeling of peace and security. Today at last I understand that truly I am the Buddha's son, born from the Buddha's mouth, born through conversion to the law, gaining my share of the Buddha's law. At that time, Shariputra, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, When I heard the sound of this law, I gained what I had never had before. My mind was filled with joy. I was released from all bonds of the net of doubt. From past times I have received the Buddha's teachings and not been denied the great vehicle. The Buddha's sound is very rarely heard, but it can free living beings from distress. Already I have put an end to outflows, and hearing this am freed from care and distress— I lived in the mountain valleys or under the forest trees, sometimes sitting, sometimes walking around, and constantly I thought of this matter, how severely I taxed myself. Why have I been deceived, I said. I and the others are sons of the Buddha too, all alike, have entered the law that is without outflows. Yet in times to come we will never be able to expound the unsurpassed way, the golden body, the thirty-two features, the ten powers, the various emancipations, though all alike share a single law, these we will never gain. The eighty types of wonderful characteristics, the eighteen unshared properties, merits such as these are all lost to us. When I was walking around alone, I saw the Buddha among the great assembly, his frame filling the ten directions, bringing benefit far and wide to living beings, and I thought to myself, I am deprived of such benefits. How greatly have I been deceived. Constantly, day and night, whenever I pondered over this, I wanted to ask the world-honored one whether I had indeed been deprived or not. Constantly, when I saw the world-honored one praising the bodhisattvas, then, day and night, I would mull this matter over. But now, as I listen to the voice of the Buddha, I see he preaches the law in accordance with what is appropriate, using this hard-to-conceive doctrine of no outflows to lead people to the place of practice. Formerly, I was attached to erroneous views, acting as a teacher to the Brahmins, But the world-honored one, knowing what was in my mind, rooted out my errors and preached nirvana. I was freed of all my errors and gained understanding of the law of emptiness. At that time, my mind told me I had reached the stage of extinction, but now I realize that that was not true extinction. If the time should come when I can become a Buddha, then I will possess all the thirty-two physical features, and heavenly and human beings, the many yakshas, dragons, spirits, and others will hold me in reverence. When that time comes, then I can say that at last all has been wiped out without residue. In the midst of the great assembly, the Buddha declared that I will become a Buddha. When I heard the sound of this law, my doubts and regrets were all wiped away. At first, when I heard the Buddha's preaching, there was great astonishment and doubt in my mind. Is this not a devil pretending to be the Buddha, trying to vex and confuse my mind? I thought but the Buddha employed various causes, similes, and parables, expounding eloquently. His mind was peaceful as the sea, and as I listened, I was freed from the net of doubt. The Buddha said that in past ages, the countless Buddhas who have passed into extinction rested and abided in the midst of expedient means, and all likewise preached this law. The Buddhas of the present and future, whose numbers are beyond calculation, they too will use expedient means in expounding this same law, Thus, the present World-Honored One, being born and later leaving his family, attaining the way and turning the wheel of the law, likewise employs expedient means in preaching. The World-Honored One preaches the true way, Papiyas would not do that. Therefore, I know for certain this is not a devil pretending to be a Buddha, but because I fell into the net of doubt, I supposed this could be the devil's work. Now I hear the Buddha's soft and gentle sound, profound, far-reaching, very subtle and wonderful, expounding and discoursing on the pure law, and my mind is filled with great joy. My doubts and regrets are forever ended. I will rest and abide in true wisdom. I am certain I will become a Buddha, to be revered by heavenly and human beings, turning the wheel of unsurpassed law, and teaching and converting the Bodhisattvas. At that time, the Buddha said to Shariputra, Now, in the midst of this great assembly of heavenly and humanly beings, Shramanas, Brahmins and so forth, I say this in the past, under 20,000 million Buddhas, for the sake of the unsurpassed way, I have constantly taught and converted you. And you, throughout the long night, followed me and accepted my instruction. Because I used expedient means to guide and lead you, you were born in the midst of my law. Shariputra, in the past, I taught you to aspire and vow to achieve the Buddha way. But now, you have forgotten all that, and instead suppose that you have already attained extinction. Now, because I wanted to make you recall to mind the way that you originally vowed to follow, for the sake of the voice hearers, I am preaching this great vehicle sutra called the Lotus of the Wonderful Law, a law to instruct the bodhisattvas, one that is guarded and kept in mind by the Buddhas. Shariputra, in ages to come, after a countless, boundless, inconceivable number of kalpas have passed, you will make offerings to some thousands, ten thousands, millions of Buddhas, and will honor and uphold the correct law. You will fulfill every aspect of the way of the Bodhisattva and will be able to become a Buddha with the name Flower Glow, Thus Come One, worthy of offerings, of right and universal knowledge, perfect clarity and conduct, well gone, understanding the world, unexcelled worthy, trainer of the people, teacher of heavenly and humanly beings, Buddha, world honored one. Your realm will be called free from stain. The land will be level and smooth, pure and beautifully adorned peaceful, bountiful, and happy. Heavenly and human beings will flourish there. The ground will be of lapis lazuli. Roads will be crisscross in it in eight directions, and ropes of gold will mark their boundaries. Beside each road will grow rows of seven jeweled trees, which will constantly flower and bear fruit. And this flower glow, thus come one, will employ the three vehicles to teach and convert living beings. Shariputra, when this Buddha appears, Although it will not be an evil age, because of his original vow, he will preach the law through the three vehicles. His kappa will be called Great Treasure Adornment. Why will it be called Great Treasure Adornment? Because in that land, bodhisattvas will be looked on as a great treasure. Those bodhisattvas will be countless, boundless, inconceivable in number, beyond the reach of reckoning or of simile and parable. Without the power of the Buddha wisdom, one cannot understand how many... Whenever these bodhisattvas wish to walk anywhere, jeweled flowers will uphold their feet. These bodhisattvas will not have just conceived the desire for enlightenment, but all will have spent a long time planting the roots of virtue. Under countless, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of Buddhas, they will have carried out Brahma practices in a flawless manner, and will have been perpetually praised by the Buddhas. Constantly, they will have cultivated Buddha wisdom acquiring great transcendental powers and thoroughly understanding the gateways to all the doctrines. They will be upright in character, without duplicity, firm in intent and thought. Bodhisattvas such as this will abound in that land. Shariputra, the lifespan of the Buddha flower glow will be twelve small kalpas, not counting the time when he is still a prince and before he becomes a Buddha. The people of this land will have a lifespan of eight small kalpas, when flower glow, thus come one, has lived for twelve small kalpas, he will prophesy that the bodhisattva firm full will attain Anuttara Samyak sambodhi. He will announce to the monks, this bodhisattva firm full will be the next to become a Buddha. He will be named Flower Feet Safely Walking, Tathagata, Arhat, Samyak Sam Buddha. His Buddha land will be like mine. Shariputra, after the Buddha flower glow has passed into extinction, The era of the correct law will last for 32 small kalpas, and the era of the counterfeit law will last for another 32 small kalpas. At that time, the world-honored one, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, Shariputra, in ages to come, you will become a Buddha of universal wisdom, venerable, bearing the name Flower Glow, and you will save countless multitudes. You will make offerings to numberless Buddhas, Be endowed with all the bodhisattva practices, the ten powers and other blessings, and will realize the unsurpassed way. After countless kalpas have passed, your kalpa will be named Great Treasure Adornment. Your world will be called free from stain, pure, without flaw or defilement. Its land will be made of lapis lazuli, its roads bounded by ropes of gold, and seven-jeweled trees in a jumble of colors will constantly bear blossoms and fruit. The Bodhisattvas of that realm will always be firm in intent and thought. Transcendental powers and paramitas, each will be endowed with all of these, and under numberless Buddhas, they will diligently study the Bodhisattva way. Thus, these great men will be converted by the Buddha Flower Glow. When that Buddha was still a prince, he gave up his country, abandoned worldly glory, and in his final incarnation left his family and attained the Buddha way. Flower Glow Buddha Will continue in the world for a lifespan of 12 small kalpas. The numerous people of his land will have a lifespan of 8 small kalpas. After that Buddha has passed into extinction, the correct law will endure in the world for 32 small kalpas, saving living beings far and wide. When the correct law has passed away, the counterfeit law will endure for 32 small kalpas. The Buddha's relics will circulate widely, heavenly and humanly beings everywhere will make offerings to them. The actions of Flower Glow Buddha will all be as I have said. This most saintly and venerable of two legged beings will be foremost and without peer, and he will be none other than you. You should rejoice and count yourself fortunate. At that time, when the four kinds of believers, namely, monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen, and the heavenly beings, dragons, yakshas, gandharvas, asuras, garudas, kimnaras, maharagas, And others in the great assembly saw how Shariputra received from the Buddha this prophecy that he would attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Their hearts were filled with great joy and danced without end. Each one removed the upper robe that he or she was wearing and presented it as an offering to the Buddha. Chakra Devanam Indra, King Brahma, and the countless sons of gods likewise took their wonderful heavenly robes, heavenly Mandarava flowers, and great Mandarava flowers, and offered them to the Buddha. The heavenly robes they had scattered remained suspended in the air and turned round and round of themselves. Heavenly beings made music, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand varieties, all at the same time in the midst of the air, raining down quantities of heavenly flowers and speaking these words. In the past, at Varanasi, the Buddha, first turned the wheel of the law. Now he turns the wheel again, the wheel of the unsurpassed, the greatest law of all. At that time, The sons of gods, wishing to state their meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, In the past, at Varanasi, you turned the wheel of the law of the four noble truths, making distinctions, preaching that all things are born and become extinct, being made up of the five components. Now you turn the wheel of the most wonderful, the unsurpassed great law. This law is very profound and abstruse. There are few who can believe it. Since times past, often we have heard the world-honored ones preaching, but we have never heard this kind of profound, wonderful, and superior law. Since the world-honored one preaches this law, we all now welcome it with joy. Shariputra, with his great wisdom, has now received this venerable prophecy. We too, in the same way, will surely be able to attain Buddhahood throughout all the many worlds, the most venerable, the unsurpassed goal. The Buddha way is difficult to fathom, but you will preach with expedient means according to what is appropriate. The meritorious deeds we have done in this existence or past existences, and the blessings gained from seeing the Buddha, all these we will apply to the Buddha way. At that time, Shariputra said to the Buddha, world-honored one, now I have no more doubts or regrets. In person I have received from the Buddha this prophecy that I will attain, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. These twelve hundred persons here whose minds are free, in the past they remained at the level of learning, And the Buddha constantly taught and converted them, saying, My law can free you from birth, old age, sickness, and death, and enable you at least to achieve nirvana. These persons, some of whom were still learning and some who had completed their learning, each believed that, because he had shed his views of self, and also his views of existing, and not existing, he had attained nirvana. But now from the world-honored one, they hear what they had never heard before, and all have fallen into doubt and perplexity. Very well, world-honored one. I beg that for the sake of the four kinds of believers you will explain the causes and conditions and make it possible for them to shed their doubts and regrets. At that time, the Buddha said to Shariputra, Did I not tell you earlier that when the Buddhas, the world-honored ones, cite various causes and conditions and use similes, parables, and other expressions, employing expedient means to preach the law, it is all for the sake of Anuttara Sambodhi? Whatever is preached is all for the sake of converting the bodhisattvas." Moreover, Shariputra, I too will now make use of similes and parables to further clarify this doctrine. For through similes and parables, those who are wise can obtain understanding. Shariputra, suppose that in a certain town, in a certain country, there was a very rich man. He was far along in years, and his wealth was beyond measure. He had many fields, houses, and men's servants. His own house was big and rambling, but had only one gate— A great many people, a hundred, two hundred, perhaps as many as five hundred, lived in the house. The halls and rooms were old and decaying, the walls crumbling, the pillars rotten at their base, and the beams and rafters crooked and aslant. At that time, a fire suddenly broke out on all sides, spreading through the rooms of the house. The sons of the rich man, ten, twenty, perhaps thirty, were inside the house. When the rich man saw the huge flames leaping up on every side, he was greatly alarmed and fearful and thought to himself, I can escape to safety through the flaming gate. But my sons are inside the burning house enjoying themselves and playing games, unaware, unknowing, without alarm or fear. The fire is closing in on them. Suffering and pain threaten them, yet their minds have no sense of loathing or peril, and they do not think of trying to escape. Shariputra, this rich man thought to himself, I have strength in my body and arms. I can wrap them up in a robe or place them on a bench and carry them out of the house. And then again he thought, this house has only one gate, and moreover it is narrow and small. My sons are very young, they have no understanding, and they love their games, being so engrossed in them that they are likely to be burned in the fire. I must explain to them why I am fearful and alarmed. The house is already in flames, and I must get them out quickly and not let them be burned up in the fire. Having thought in this way, he followed his plan and called to all his sons, saying, You must come out at once. But though the father was moved by pity and gave good words of instruction, the sons were absorbed in their games and unwilling to heed him. They had no alarm, no fright, and in the end, no mind to leave the house. Moreover, they did not understand what the fire was, what the house was what danger was. They merely raced about this way and that in play, and looked at their father without heeding him. At that time the rich man had this thought, the house is already in flames from this huge fire. If I and my sons do not get out at once, we are certain to be burned. I must now invent some expedient means that will make it possible for the children to escape harm. The father understood his sons and knew what various toys and curious objects each child customarily liked and what would delight them. So he said to them, The kinds of playthings you like are rare and hard to find. If you do not take them when you can, you will surely regret it later. For example, things like these goat carts, deer carts, and ox carts. They are outside the gate now, where you can play with them. So you must come out of this burning house at once. Then, whatever ones you want, I will give them all to you. At that time, when the sons heard their father telling them about these rare playthings, because such things were just what they had wanted, each felt emboldened in heart, and, pushing and shoving one another, they all came wildly dashing out of the burning house. At this time the rich man, seeing that his sons had gotten out safely and all were seated on the open ground at the crossroads and were no longer in danger, was greatly relieved and his mind danced for joy. At that time each of the sons said to his father, The playthings you promised us earlier, the goat carts and deer carts and ox carts, please give them to us now. Chariputra. at that time the rich man gave to each of his sons a large carriage of uniform size and quality. The carriages were tall and spacious and adorned with numerous jewels. A railing ran all around them, and bells hung from all four sides. A canopy was stretched over the top, which was also decorated with an assortment of precious jewels. Ropes of jewels twined around, a fringe of flowers hung down, and layers of cushions were spread inside, on which were placed vermilion pillows. Each carriage was drawn by a white ox, pure and clean in hide, handsome in form and of great strength, capable of pulling the carriage smoothly and properly at a pace fast as the wind. In addition, there were many grooms and servants to attend and guard the carriage. What was the reason for this? The rich man's wealth was limitless, and he had many kinds of storehouses that were all filled and overflowing. And he thought to himself, "'There is no end to my possessions.' It would not be right if I were to give my sons small carriages of inferior make. These little boys are all my sons, and I love them without partiality. I have countless numbers of large carriages adorned with seven kinds of gems. I should be fair-minded and give one to each of my sons. I should not show any discrimination. Why? Because even if I distributed these possessions of mine to every person in the whole country, I would still not exhaust them, much less could I do so by giving them to my sons. At that time, each of the sons mounted his large carriage, gaining something he had never had before, something he had originally never expected. Shariputra, what do you think of this? When this rich man impartially handed out to his sons these big carriages adorned with rare jewels, was he guilty of falsehood or not? Shariputra said, no world-honored one. This rich man simply made it possible for his sons to escape the peril of fire and preserve their lives. He did not commit a falsehood. Why do I say this? Because if they were able to preserve their lives, then they had already obtained a plaything of sorts. And how much more so when, through an expedient means, they are rescued from that burning house. World honored one, even if the rich man had not given them the tiniest carriage, he would still not be guilty of falsehood. Why? Because this rich man had earlier made up his mind that he would employ an expedient means to cause his sons to escape. Using a device of this kind was no act of falsehood. How much less so, then, when the rich man knew that his wealth was limitless and he intended to enrich and benefit his sons by giving each of them a large carriage. The Buddha said to Shariputra, Very good, very good. It is just as you have said. And Shariputra, the thus-come-one, is like this. That is, he is a father to all the world. His fears, cares, and anxieties, ignorance and misunderstanding, have long come to an end, leaving no residue, He has fully succeeded in acquiring measureless insight, power and freedom from fear, and gaining great supernatural powers and the power of wisdom. He is endowed with expedient means and the paramita of wisdom. His great pity and great compassion are constant and unflagging. At all times he seeks what is good and will bring benefit to all. He is born into the threefold world, a burning house, rotten and old, in order to save living beings from the fires of birth, old age, sickness, and death care, suffering, stupidity, misunderstanding, and the three poisons. To teach and convert them and enable them to attain, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. He sees living beings seared and consumed by birth, old age, sickness and death, care and suffering, sees them undergo many kinds of pain because of the five desires and the desire for wealth and profit. Again, because of their greed and attachment and striving, they undergo numerous pains in their present existence, and later they undergo the pain of being reborn in hell or as beasts or hungry spirits. Even if they are reborn in the heavenly realm or the realm of human beings, they undergo the pain of poverty and want, the pain of parting from loved ones, the pain of encountering those they detest, all these many different kinds of pain. Yet, living beings, drowned in the midst of all this, delight and amuse themselves, unaware, unknowing, without alarm or fear. They feel no sense of loathing and make no attempt to escape. In this burning house which is the threefold world, they race about to east and west, and though they encounter great pain, they are not distressed by it. Shariputra, when the Buddha sees this, then he thinks to himself, I am the father of living beings, and I should rescue them from their sufferings, and give them the joy of the measureless and boundless Buddha wisdom, so that they may find their enjoyment in that. Shariputra, the Thus Come One also has this thought, If I should merely employ supernatural powers and the power of wisdom, If I should set aside expedient means, and for the sake of living beings, should praise the thus-come-one's insight, power, and freedom from fear, then living beings would not be able to gain salvation. Why? Because these living beings have not yet escaped from birth, old age, sickness, death, care, and suffering, but are consumed by flames in the burning house that is the threefold world. How could they be able to understand the Buddha's wisdom? Shariputra, that rich man, though he had strength in his body and arms, did not use it. He merely employed a carefully contrived expedient means, and thus was able to rescue his sons from the peril of the burning house, and afterwards gave each of them a large carriage adorned with rare jewels. And the thus-come-one does the same. Though he possesses power and freedom from fear, he does not use these. He merely employs wisdom and expedient means to rescue living beings from the burning house of the threefold world, expounding to them the three vehicles, the vehicle of the voice-hearer, that of the Pratyaka Buddha, and that of the Buddha. He says to them, you must not be content to stay in this burning house of the threefold world. Do not be greedy for its coarse and shoddy forms, sounds, sense, tastes, and sensations. If you become attached to them and learn to love them, you will be burned up. You must come out of this threefold world at once so that you can acquire the three vehicles, the vehicle of the voice hearer, the Pratyaka Buddha, and the Buddha. I promise you now that you will get them and that promise will never prove false. You have only to apply yourselves with diligent effort. The thus-come-one employs this expedient means to lure living beings into action. And then he says to them, You should understand that these doctrines of the three vehicles are all praised by the sages. They are free, without entanglements, leaving nothing further to depend on or seek. Mount these three vehicles. Gain roots that are without outflows. Gain powers, awareness, the way, meditation, emancipation, samadhis, and then enjoy yourselves. You will gain the delight of immeasurable peace and safety. Shariputra, if there are living beings who are inwardly wise in nature, and who attend to the Buddha, the world-honored one, hear the law, believe and accept it, and put forth diligent effort, desiring to escape quickly from the threefold world, and seeking to attain nirvana, they should be called those who ride the vehicle of the voice-hearer. They are like those sons who left the burning house in the hope of acquiring goat-carts." If there are living beings who attend the Buddha, the World-Honored One, hear the law, believe and accept it, and put forth diligent effort, seeking wisdom that comes of itself, taking solitary delight in goodness and tranquility, and profoundly understanding the causes and conditions of all phenomena, they should be called those who ride the vehicle of the Pratyekka Buddha. They are like the sons who left the burning house in the hope of acquiring deer carts. If there are living beings who attend the Buddha, the World-Honored One, hear the law, believe and accept it, and put forth diligent effort, seeking comprehensive wisdom, Buddha wisdom, wisdom that comes of itself, teacherless wisdom, the insight of the thus-come-one, powers and freedom from fear, who pity and comfort countless living beings, bring benefit to heavenly and humanly beings, and save them all, they shall be called those who ride the great vehicle. Because the bodhisattvas seek this vehicle, they are called mahasattvas. They are like the sons who left the burning house in the hope of acquiring ox carts. Shariputra, that rich man, Seeing that his sons had all gotten out of the burning house safely, and were no longer threatened, recalled that his wealth was immeasurable, and presented each of his sons with a large carriage. And the Thus Come One does likewise. He is the father of all living beings. When he sees that countless thousands of millions of living beings, through the gateway of the Buddha's teaching, can escape the pains of the threefold world, the fearful and perilous road, and gain delights of nirvana, the Thus Come One, at that time has this thought. I possess measureless, boundless wisdom, power, fearlessness, the storehouse of the law of the Buddhas. These living beings are all my sons. I will give the great vehicle to all of them equally, so that there will not be those who gain extinction by themselves, but that all may do so through the extinction of the thus-come-one. To all the living beings who have escaped from the threefold world, he then gives the delightful gifts of the meditation, emancipation, and so forth of the Buddhas. All these are uniform in characteristics, uniform in type, praised by the sages, capable of producing pure, wonderful, supreme delight. Shariputra, that rich man first used three types of carriages to entice his sons, but later he gave them just the large carriage, adorned with jewels, the safest, most comfortable kind of all. Despite this, that rich man was not guilty of falsehood. The thus-come-one does the same, and he is without falsehood. First he preaches the three vehicles to attract and guide living beings, but later he employs just the Great Vehicle to save them. Why? The thus-come-one possesses measureless wisdom, power, freedom from fear, the storehouse of the law. He is capable of giving to all living beings the law of the Great Vehicle. But not all of them are capable of receiving it. Shariputra, for this reason, you should understand that the Buddhas employ the power of expedient means, and because they do so, they make distinctions in the one Buddha vehicle and preach it as three. The Buddha, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying Suppose there was a rich man who had a large house. This house was very old and decayed and dilapidated as well. The halls, though lofty, were in dangerous condition. The bases of the pillars had rotted. Beams and rafters were slanting and askew. Foundations and steps were crumbling. Walls were cracked and gaping, and the plaster had fallen off of them. The roof thatch was in disrepair or missing. The tips of the eaves had dropped off. The fences surrounding it were crooked or collapsed, and heaped rubbish was piled all around. Some five hundred persons lived in the house. Kites, owls, hawks, eagles, crows, magpies, doves, pigeons, lizards, snakes, vipers, scorpions, centipedes, and millipedes, newts and ground beetles, weasels, raccoon dogs, mice, rats, hordes of evil creatures scurried this way and that. Places that stank of excrement overflowed in streams of filth, where dung beetles and other creatures gathered. Foxes, wolves, and jackals gnawed and trampled in the filth or tore apart dead bodies, scattering bones and flesh about. Because of this, packs of dogs came racing to the spot to snatch and tear, driven by hunger and fear, searching everywhere for food, fighting, struggling, seizing, baring their teeth, snarling, and howling. That house was fearful, frightening, so altered was its aspect. In every part of it, there were goblins and trolls, yakshas and evil spirits who feed on human flesh or on poisonous creatures. The various evil birds and beasts bore offspring, hatched and nursed them, each hiding and protecting its young. But the yakshas outdid one another, in their haste to seize and eat them. And when they had eaten their fill, their evil hearts became fiercer than ever. The sound of their wrangling and contention was terrifying indeed." Kumbanda demons crouched on clumps of earth or leaped one or two feet off the ground, idling, wandering here and there, amusing themselves according to their whim. Sometimes they seized a dog by two of its legs and beat it till it had lost its voice, or planted their feet on the dog's neck, terrifying it for their own delight. And there were demons with large, tall bodies, naked in form, black and emaciated, constantly living there, who would cry out in loud, ugly voices, shouting and demanding food. There were other demons whose throats were like needles, or still other demons with heads like the head of an ox, some feeding on human flesh, others devouring dogs, their hair tangled like weeds, cruel, baleful, ferocious, driven by hunger and thirst, they dashed about shrieking and howling. The yakshas and starving spirits and the various evil birds and beasts hungrily pressed forward in all directions, peering out at the windows. Such were the perils of this house, threats and terrors beyond measure. This house, old and rotting, belonged to a certain man, and that man had gone nearby and had not been out for long, when a fire suddenly broke out in the house. In one moment, from all four sides, the flames rose up in a mass. Ridge poles, beams, rafters, pillars exploded with a roar, quivering, splitting, broke in two, and came tumbling down, as walls and partitions collapsed. The various demons and spirits lifted their voices in a great wail, the hawks, eagles, and other birds the Kumbanda demons, were filled with panic and terror, not knowing how to escape. The evil beasts and poisonous creatures hid in their holes and dens, and the Pishacha demons, who were also living there because they had done so little that was good, were oppressed by the flames and attacked one another, drinking blood and gobbling flesh. The jackals and their like were already dead by this time, and the larger of the evil beasts vied in devouring them. Foul smoke swirled and billowed up, filling the house on every side. The centipedes and millipedes, the poisonous snakes and their kind, scorched by the flames, came scurrying out of their layers, whereupon the Kumbanda demons pounced on them and ate them. In addition, the starving spirits, the fire raging about their heads, hungry, thirsty, tormented by the heat, raced this way and that in terror and confusion. Such was the state of that house, truly frightening and fearful. Malicious injury, the havoc of the fire many ills, not just one, afflicted it. At this time, the owner of the house was standing outside the gate when he heard someone say, a while ago, your various sons, in order to play their games, went inside the house. They are very young and lack understanding and will be wrapped up in their amusements. When the rich man heard this, he rushed in alarm into the burning house, determined to rescue his sons and keep them from being burned by the flames. He urged his sons to heed him, explaining the many dangers and perils, the evil spirits and poisonous creatures, the flames spreading all around, the multitude of sufferings that would follow one another without end, the poisonous snakes, lizards and vipers, as well as the many yakshas and kumbanda demons, the jackals, foxes and dogs, hawks, eagles, kites, owls, ground beetles and similar creatures, driven and tormented by hunger and thirst, truly things to be feared. His sons could not stay in such a perilous place— much less when it was all on fire. But the sons had no understanding, and though they had heard their father's warnings, they continued, engrossed in their amusements, never ceasing their games. At that time the rich man thought to himself, My sons behave in this manner, adding to my grief and anguish. In this house at present there is not a single joy, and yet my sons, wrapped up in their games, refuse to heed my instructions, and will be destroyed by the fire. Then it occurred to him, to devise some expedient means, and he said to his sons, I have many kinds of rare and marvelous toys, wonderful jeweled carriages, goat carts, deer carts, carts drawn by big oxen. They are outside the gate right now. You must come out and see them. I have fashioned these carts explicitly for you. You may enjoy whichever you choose, and play with them as you like. When the sons heard this description of the carts, at once they vied with one another in dashing out of the house till they reached the open ground, away from all peril and danger. When the rich man saw that his sons had escaped from the burning house, and were standing in the crossroads, he seated himself on a lion's seat, congratulating himself in these words, Now I am content and happy. These sons of mine have been very difficult to raise. Ignorant, youthful, without understanding, they entered that perilous house, with its many poisonous creatures, and its goblins to be feared. The roaring flames of the great fire rose up on all four sides, Yet those sons of mine still clung to their games. But now I have saved them, caused them to escape from danger. That is the reason, good people, I am content and happy. At that time, the sons, seeing their father comfortably seated, all went to where he was and said to him, Please give us the three kinds of jeweled carriages you promised us earlier. You said, If we came out of the house, you give us three kinds of carts, and we could choose whichever we wished. Now is the time to give them to us. The rich man was very wealthy and had many storehouses, With gold, silver, lapis lazuli, seashells, agate, and other such precious things, he fashioned large carriages, beautifully adorned and decorated, with railings running around them and bells hanging from all sides, ropes of gold twisted and twined, nets of pearls stretched over the top, and fringes of golden flowers hung down everywhere. Multicolored decorations wound around and encircled the carriages, soft silks and gauzes served for cushions, with fine felts of the most wonderful make, valued at thousands or millions, gleaming white and pure to spread over them. There were large white oxen, sleek stalwarts of great strength, handsome in form to draw the jeweled carriages, and numerous grooms and attendants to accompany and guard them. These wonderful carriages the man presented to each of his sons alike— The sons at that time danced for joy, mounting the jeweled carriages, driving off in all directions, delighting and amusing themselves freely and without hindrance. I say this to you, Shariputra, I am like this rich man. I, most venerable of all sages, am the father of this world, and all living beings are my children. But they are deeply attached to worldly pleasures, and lacking in minds of wisdom. There is no safety in the threefold world. It is like the burning house, replete with a multitude of sufferings truly to be feared constantly beset with the griefs and pains of birth, old age, sickness, and death, which are like fires, raging fiercely and without cease. The thus-come-one has already left the burning house of the threefold world and dwells in tranquil quietude in the safety of forest and plain. But now this threefold world is all my domain, and the living beings in it are all my children. Now this place is beset by many pains and trials. I am the only person who can rescue and protect others, but though I teach and instruct them, they do not believe or accept my teachings because, tainted by desires, they are deeply immersed in greed and attachment. So I employ an expedient means, describing to them the three vehicles, causing all living beings to understand the pains of the threefold world, and then I set forth and expound a way whereby they can escape from the world. If these children of mine will only determine in their minds to do so, they can acquire all the three understandings and the six transcendental powers and become Prachekya Buddhas, or Bodhisattvas, who never regress. I say to you, Shariputra, for the sake of living beings, I employ these similes and parables to preach the single Buddha vehicle. If you and the others are capable of believing and accepting my words, then all of you are certain to attain the Buddha way. This vehicle is subtle, wonderful, foremost in purity. Throughout all worlds, it stands unsurpassed. The Buddha delights in and approves it, and all living beings should praise it offer it alms and obeisance. There are immeasurable thousands of millions of powers, emancipations, meditations, wisdoms, and other attributes of the Buddha, but if the children can obtain this vehicle, it will allow them day and night for unnumbered kalpas to find constant enjoyment, to join the bodhisattvas and the multitude of voice hearers in mounting this jeweled vehicle and proceeding directly to the place of practice." For these reasons, though one should seek diligently in the ten directions, he will find no other vehicles except when the Buddha preaches them as an expedient means. I tell you, Shariputra, you and the others are all my children, and I am a father to you. For repeated kalpas, you have burned in the flames of manifold sufferings, but I will save you all and cause you to escape from the threefold world. Although earlier I told you that you had attained extinction, that was only the end of birth and death. It was not true extinction." Now what is needed is simply that you acquire Buddha wisdom. If there are bodhisattvas here in the assembly, let them with a single mind listen to the true law of the Buddhas. Though the Buddhas, the world-honored ones, employ expedient means, the living beings converted by them are all bodhisattvas. If there are persons of little wisdom who are deeply attached to love and desire, because they are that way, the Buddha preaches for them the rule of suffering. Then the living beings will be glad in mind, having gained what they never had before, The rule of suffering which the Buddha preaches is true and never varies. If there are living beings who do not understand the root of suffering, who are deeply attached to the causes of suffering and cannot for a moment put them aside because they are that way, the Buddha uses expedient means to preach the way. As to the cause of all suffering, it has its roots in greed and desire. If greed and desire are wiped out, it will have no place to dwell. To wipe out all suffering, this is called the third rule. For the sake of this rule, the rule of extinction, one practices the way. And when one escapes from the bonds of suffering, this is called attaining emancipation. By what means can a person attain emancipation? Separating oneself from falsehood and delusion, this alone may be called emancipation. But if a person has not truly been able to emancipate himself from everything, then the Buddha will say he has not achieved true extinction, because such a person has not yet gained the unsurpassed way. My purpose is not to try to cause them to reach extinction. I am the Dharma king, free to do as I will with the law, to bring peace and safety to living beings. That is the reason I appear in the world. I say to you, Shariputra, this Dharma seal of mine, I preach because I wish to bring benefit to the world. You must not recklessly transmit it wherever you happen to wander. If there is someone who hears it, responds with joy, and gratefully accepts it, you should know that that person is an avivartika. If there is someone who believes and accepts the law of this sutra, that person has already seen the Buddhas of the past, has respectfully offered alms to them, and listened to this law. If there is someone who can believe what you preach, then that person has seen me, and has also seen you, and the other monks, and the bodhisattvas. This Lotus Sutra is preached for those with profound wisdom. If persons of shallow understanding hear it, they will be perplexed and fail to comprehend. As for all the voice hearers and pratyekha Buddhas, in this sutra there are things that are beyond their powers. Even you, Shariputra, in the case of this sutra, were able to gain entrance through faith alone. How much more so than the other voice hearers? Those other voice hearers, it is because they have faith in the Buddha's words that they can comply with this sutra, not because of any wisdom of their own. Also, Shariputra, to persons who are arrogant or lazy, or taken up with views of the self, do not preach this sutra. Those with the shallow understanding of ordinary persons who are deeply attached to the five desires cannot comprehend it when they hear it. Do not preach it to them. If a person fails to have faith but instead slanders this sutra, immediately he will destroy all the seeds for becoming a Buddha in this world. Or perhaps he will scowl with knitted brows and harbor doubt or perplexity. Listen and I will tell you the penalty this person must pay. Whether the Buddha is in the world or has already entered extinction, if this person should slander a sutra such as this, or on seeing those who read, recite, copy, and uphold this sutra, should despise, hate, envy, or bear grudges against them, the penalty this person must pay, listen, I will tell you now, when this life comes to an end, he will enter the Avici hell, be confined there for a whole kalpa, and when the kalpa ends, be born there again. He will keep repeating this cycle for a countless number of kalpas. Though he may emerge from hell, he will fall into the realm of beasts becoming a dog or jackal, his form lean and scruffy, dark, discolored with scabs and sores, something for men to make sport of. Or again, he will be hated and despised by men, constantly plagued by hunger and thirst, his bones and flesh dried up, in life undergoing torment and hardship, in death buried beneath tiles and stones, because he cut off the seeds of Buddhahood, he will suffer this penalty. If he should become a camel, or be born in the shape of a donkey. His body will constantly bear heavy burdens and have the stick or whip laid on it. He will think only of water and grass and understand nothing else. Because he slandered this sutra, this is the punishment he will incur. Or he will be born as a jackal, who comes to the village, body all scabs and sores, having only one eye, by the boys beaten and cuffed, suffering grief and pain, sometimes to the point of death. And after he has died, he will be born again in the body of a serpent, long and huge in size measuring five hundred yojanas, deaf, witless, without feet, slithering along on his belly, and little creatures biting and feeding on him, day and night, undergoing hardship, never knowing rest. Because he slandered the sutra, this is the punishment he will incur. If he should become a human being, his faculties will be blighted and dull. He will be puny, vile, bent, blind, deaf, and hunchbacked. The things he says people will not believe, The breath from his mouth will be constantly foul. He will be possessed by devils, poor and lowly, ordered around by others, plagued by many ailments, thin and gaunt, having no one to turn to. Though he attached himself to others, they would never think of him. Though he might gain something, he would at once lose or forget it. Though he might practice the art of medicine, and by its methods cure someone's disease, the person would grow sicker from some other malady, and perhaps in the end would die." If he himself had an illness, no one would aid or nurse him, and though he took good medicine, it would only make his condition worse. If others should turn against him, he would find himself plundered and robbed. His sins would be such that they would bring unexpected disaster on him. A sinful person of this sort will never see the Buddha, the king of the many sages, preaching the law, teaching and converting. A sinful person of this sort will constantly be born amid difficulties, crazed, deaf, confused in mind, and never will hear the law. For countless kalpas, numerous as the Ganges' sands, he will at birth become deaf and dumb, his faculties impaired, and will constantly dwell in hell, strolling in it as though it were a garden, and the other evil paths of existence he will look on as his home. Camel, donkey, pig, dog, these will be the forms he will take on. Because he slandered this sutra, this is the punishment he will incur. If he should become a human being, he will be deaf, blind, dumb. Poverty, want, all kinds of decay will be his adornment. Water blisters, diabetes, scabs, sores, ulcers, maladies such as these will be his garments. His body will always smell bad, filthy and impure. Deeply attached to views of self, he will grow in anger and hatred, aflame with licentious desires. He will not spurn even birds or beasts. Because he slandered this sutra, this is the punishment he will incur. I tell you, Shariputra, if I were to describe the punishments that fall on persons who slander this sutra, I could exhaust a kalpa and never come to the end. For this reason, I expressly say to you, do not preach this sutra to persons who are without wisdom. But if there are those of keen capacities, wise and understanding, of much learning and strong memory, who seek the Buddha way, then to persons such as this it is permissible to preach it. If there are persons who have seen hundreds and thousands and millions of Buddhas, have planted many good roots, and are firm and deeply committed in mind, then to persons such as this it is permissible to preach it. If there are persons who are diligent, constantly cultivating a compassionate mind, not begrudging of life or limb, then it is permissible to preach it. If there are persons who are respectful, reverent, with minds set on nothing else, who separate themselves from common folly to live alone among mountains and rivers, then to persons such as this it is permissible to preach it. Again, Shariputra, if you see a person who thrusts aside evil friends and associates with good companions, then to a person such as this it is permissible to preach it. If you see a son of the Buddha, observing the precepts, clean and spotless as a pure, bright gem, seeking the great vehicle Sutra, then to a person such as this it is permissible to preach it. If a person is without anger, upright and gentle in nature, constantly pitying all beings, respectful and reverent to the Buddhas, then to a person such as this, it is permissible to preach it. Again, if a son of the Buddha in the midst of the great assembly should with a pure mind employ various causes and conditions, similes, parables, and other expressions to preach the law in unhindered fashion, to a person such as this, it is permissible to preach it. If there are monks who, for the sake of comprehensive wisdom, seek the law in every direction, pressing palms together, gratefully accepting, desiring only to accept and embrace the Sutra of the Great Vehicle, and not accepting a single verse of the other Sutras, to persons such as this it is permissible to preach it. If a person, earnest in mind, seeks this Sutra, as though he were seeking the Buddha's relics, and having gained and gratefully accepted it, That person shows no intention of seeking other sutras and has never once given thought to the writings of the non-Buddhist doctrines. To a person such as this, it is permissible to preach it. I tell you, Shariputra, if I described all the characteristics of those who seek the Buddha way, I would exhaust a kalpa and never be done. Persons of this type are capable of believing and understanding. Therefore, for them you should preach the Lotus Sutra of the Wonderful Law. So, Docs, what did you think?
1: That was a lot. That was a, that was dense. That was something that required effort to get through, but it was also really interesting.
0: I agree. I've had the same experience. I've read the Lotus Sutra in its entirety, I think two or three times now. And every time I get something new out of it, because something you mentioned before um, over Discord, when we were talking about this episode is that it's very dense yet somehow super repetitive but mm-hmm. also packed with like really detailed information and and I think that's a good way to to look at it. It's it's formulaic and repetitive like we've talked about before for the purpose of repetition and recitation, but at the same time if you blink you'll miss something.
1: Yeah. So I guess I'll start with my first question about this which is uh, who is Shariputra? The, this is the first character we're introduced to in this chapter. I want to know more about this guy.
0: Very good question. Shariputra is one of the Buddha's first disciples, and he is the most learned disciple in the Theravada tradition. In the early Buddhist sutras, the early schools, before there was such a thing as a Mahayana-Theravada divide, Shariputra was regarded as the the wisest and the most adept at the practices and at meditation and all of these sorts of things. But as Mahayana literature started to abound, Shariputra sort of came to represent the Theravada teachings and started to advocate for them and say, hey, what about the Theravada teachings in the Mahayana Sutras to the Buddha? So the Buddha could then rhetorically figure out a way to out-clever the Theravada teachings. And so this is a Mahayana Sutra, and Shariputra is a stand-in for the audience. He is a stand-in for people who are familiar with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. They they haven't really read everything else leading up to the Lotus Sutra, if that makes sense. He is, on the one hand, an audience stand-in, and on the other hand, kind of a whipping boy, kind of a, a dunce character, because he always yeah. repetitively in this sutra as well, several times, he gets just like gobsmacked by the incredible, deep, amazing, fantastic, awesome Mahayana teaching. That's part of like the issue of the divide between Theravada and Mahayana is that the Mahayana texts, they all are super, super insulting to Theravada teachings and people. Yeah. Shariputra is actually worshipped as and rightfully so. as They think of him as deserving a great deal of respect for being the most learned and the wisest one. And so his position in the Mahayana Sutras is is kind of problematic in their view. It's kind of insulting. It's kind of offensive to the Theravada traditions. But this sutra and those that believe in it, buy into it and respond to it, they often say, Well, we're not being that insulting to Shariputra because he gets his prophecy. He gets his prophecy of Buddhahood. And so it's not that bad. He's actually, even though he does represent the Theravada teachings, which we are arguing are inferior, he still is superior because he's going to be a Buddha someday. So there's a lot of debate about Shariputra in this this text, but that's who he is. He's an early disciple who rises through the ranks and is deserving of a great deal of respect in the early texts. But then the later texts kind of draw back over him as an audience stand-in and as like a Theravada whipping boy.
1: It was interesting to see him kind of going back and forth between, hey, you're going to be a Buddha. You're, here's your prophecy. Here's how this is going to work. And also you're wrong about everything. Right. <laughs> what? That, yeah, I, I'm going to, We're you know, this is a long sutra overall. We're just doing one chapter of it and... So I suspect we're going to see a lot more of Shariputra. I would like to I would like to hear more about Shariputra from the Theravada perspective at this point. We've got the Mahayana version. I want to see what the older version is like.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think that we might be reading our modern Mahayana Theravada divide into it when we say that they treat him so badly because shariputra is fully enlightened so we've talked about and the sutra talks about the arhats the prachekya buddhas the bodhisattvas and the buddhas shariputra is a fully realized arhat which means that he is omniscient now he he's fully enlightened and this is his last life before he passes away and reaches final nirvana now, that's what the previous sutras would say. This sutra turns that whole thing on top of it all over on its head, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But Shariputra is a fully realized Arhat. He's, and and this sutra doesn't really mention that. They don't often go into the, the CV or the resume of the characters that they name in the assembly around the Buddha, but he is fully like the most realized Arhat in the crowd. And so it's kind of... There is some respect given to that aspect to it, but there's also turning the entire Arhat path on its head. And so since this text was written in you know the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries AD, we might be reading a little bit of our modern conception of the divide back into that time when those divides may not have been so distinct and may not have been so sharp. This doesn't take away from the fact that this entire text is a huge diss track against the Theravada tradition, but it does speak to the fact that maybe this audience was reading it differently than we are. Because they didn't have 1800 years of history to inform that reading like we have.
1: Well, for what it's worth, I also didn't have that 1800 years of history to inform my reading because I don't know that history. I haven't studied it. And even without that ooh, the I can see, like, this is mean to the Theravada mis- traditions. Absolutely. Like, you don't need that history to see that this is not a kind representation of that tradition.
0: So, yeah, like,
1: yeah, I kind of totally understand why Theravada folks would be real mad about this.
0: Yeah, they actually regard this text as apocryphal. And it's not just because of the fact that The text is so critical of the Theravada path. In fact, one of their strongest critiques comes up about a chapter later in the text, where it's actually chapter 16. It's called the Immeasurable Life chapter. That chapter argues that the historical Buddha that we had was actually not a person who went through infinite rebirths, accrued merit, became a Buddha, and entered final nirvana never to return the previous texts and the theravada tradition argues that that's how that works you spend many many lifetimes studying and working and meditating and doing good works and then whenever you have gotten to the top of your karmic mountain so to speak then you you pass away into final nirvana and you don't come back you have exited samsara and you're done and that's the ideal right you've gone from samsara to nirvana but Because the Mahayana has problematized the duality between samsara and nirvana so much leading up to this text, and because there have been all of these other really trippy Mahayana sutras that involve different universes and different realms and different worlds, and other things that we'll see whenever we read texts like the Vimalakirti Sutra, when we read more chapters out of this sutra, things like that. Because of that, they start to redefine the position of the Buddha in the cosmology, and they argue that this Buddha, the Shakyamuni Buddha, is actually the manifestation of a primordial Buddha who has an immeasurable lifespan, and he only arises in the world when he's needed, and then he kind of comes out of the world as like a skillful means. All of the rebirths of Shakyamuni Buddha in the past, as documented by these texts called the Jataka Tales, Tales of Past Lives, And the life of the Buddha as we know it, the being born into a rich family, a palace, and then leaving the palace, and then studying and enlightening people and preaching the Lotus Sutra, the whole story, all of that was a skillful means to enlighten people. All of that was an expedient means to cause people to be interested in becoming enlightened and escaping the burning house, so to speak. And they argue that that violates the truth of impermanence and the truth of emptiness, they argue that an immeasurable primordial Buddha is an unchanging thing and you can't have an unchanging thing. And they also argue that it violates just the very nature of like rebirth as it's been conceived because this primordial Buddha, he's not really born and reborn, if that makes sense. He kind of is the cornerstone of the Dharma manifest. And that's a redefinition of the Dharma that a lot of Theravada people are kind of uncomfortable with. And so they, they critique this text as being a complete Mahayana invention.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the names in this Sutra. So we have, you know, Shariputra and several other names that are not really translated, but then we get names like in this translation Flower glow, thus come one, and then a realm that's called free from stain or great treasure adornment. We talked a bit about this before actually starting to record this. We came at the we come to pretty different conclusions on these naming conventions. I come at this primarily as a fiction writer at this point, and this kind of naming convention is really interesting to me this. I'm not sure how else to say it. I like the way these names come out. And I often use, in my own writing, names that have actual literal meanings and are often, you know, claimed or earned names that come after being named at childhood. So this kind of thing is cool to me, but is this what a native speaker would think of when they see these names?
0: Yeah, that's that speaks to where my perspective is a little bit different. Anytime that I read a sutra that's been translated into English, I always get a little bit like it's a little pet peeve of mine whenever I see names like that have been translated into the kind of the substituent parts of that name as they would correspond to English. So the example that I use is that like my name is Nicholas and that is a Greek word that roughly translates to victory of the people. And I don't really want to be called or thought of as victory of the people because that's just like clunky and awkward and it doesn't really – it's not my identity. So I always – I think that names, proper nouns in general really are something that is supposed to be left untranslated in scholarship so that you can have consistency and like the ability to cross-reference more easily. The other reason for that is that these translations are difficult and – dubious sometimes so what one translator will call flower glow thus come one another translator might call gleaming blossom tatagata, or something like that and free from stain might be perfectly clean or something like that these are very interpretive and contentious and that makes it a lot harder to see if flower glow bodhisattva comes up in other texts If you want to do a text search of another sutra and find him, you can't because he might be called Gleaming Blossom and you you wouldn't know that. And the other thing that kind of makes me upset about it is that Shariputra and other characters are left untranslated, but these bodhisattvas that are in the assembly and also like these prophesized bodhisattvas in the future, they are fully translated. And that's just an inconsistency. If you're going to not translate Shariputra, then you shouldn't translate, you know, flower glow either, especially since actually (laughs) Shariputra and flower glow are the same person. So I think that that's one of my biggest critiques with like the readability of this text. I can understand why one might do it because it increases accessibility I think that people get intimidated by super long Sanskrit names. I know that I do. And when I'm doing the readings of the sutras, I prefer actually the English translated ones because they're easier for me to say without tripping. And I get to continue to record without having messed it up. But as a scholar, I don't really like to see those because they're interpretive and they are not how we refer to each other.
1: Yeah. Again the writer side loves this the scholar side of me agrees with you entirely it's an interesting question to start with in translation that is something that i've probably done differently like in my own writing than people would actually do so i guess i should i don't know how to Gain the context for that, I guess. I I can't. I definitely don't have the time to actually study other languages to actually know how these are supposed to sound, but I'm not sure how to approach that.
0: These names may have this or that compound meaning, but the syllables might be different to the point where, you know, over time, language develops and names develop. You know, originally, my, I think that the name Nicholas was something like Nikolaus or Nicolos or something like that. And it was spelled differently and it was sounded differently. And now it's Nicholas. And then maybe eventually, as time goes on, the last part will be dropped off and people will just be named Nick or something like that. I don't know how the future will go for that. But I do know that the way that language develops over time, it favors ease of pronunciation over meaning, it favors sound over meaning. And so Undoubtedly, the same thing has happened with these sutras. Undoubtedly, these same things happened with these names as they were being used at the time that they were given to people. So it's contentious. It's contentious at the very least because that change over time is not reflected by these translations. And it's also kind of like drawn over and glossed over in terms of the person's identity and things like that. That does not take away from the fact that these names are often ceremonious so there is good reason to believe that shariputra is not the name that that person was born with oftentimes it is buddhist tradition that whenever you become a disciple you get a you get an ordination name or a name as an ordained monk for example my professor has a regular english american name but his ordination name is gensho or something like that because he was ordained with a japanese Buddhist temple and they never call him that they he's not listed in their context list as Gensho he's listed as his American full name but it's usually a ceremonious title and it's just a tradition that started in these texts and so I think that that might lend defense to translating the names because they actually are supposed to be thematic or reflecting something that the person has earned like you were talking about so. That might be a defense for why the translator would translate these names into English.
1: Let's talk a little bit about poetry and the parts of this that are in verse. So as I was reading this, I was wondering how much of the poetry aspect is lost in translation. When we're talking about Western poetry, at least, and we usually have rhymings or rhythmic schemes that define something as being a type of poetry but i know very little about poetry outside of the west so how is this supposed to read like are there bits that we're not getting in the english or
0: how does that work that's a good question and that speaks to the origins of the authorship of the text itself so as i mentioned in the introduction before i started the reading the composition of the text took place in four phases. Um, The first phase was the verse portions of chapters 2 through 9, and then the second phase included the prose versions. It might be difficult to hear from my reading when it switches to verse, because the English verse definitely doesn't rhyme, but oftentimes the sutra will signal, intending to speak their meaning again, this and that person spoke in verse form, saying, and then starts speaking in verse. As for like the poetry aspect of it that's kind of it's complicated compared to western poetry there is not a prescribed rhythm scheme and there's not a prescribed rhyme scheme indian poetry was not supposed to rhyme in fact it was thought to be kind of vulgar sometimes and kind of childish if it did rhyme and so oftentimes devotional texts especially did not rhyme they had kind of strict vocabulary rules and conventions of their own but they never were really meant to rhyme for the most part. This changes in the rest of East Asia. Chinese poetry had very strict rules about rhyming. So it was, it was permitted, but it could only happen in certain points. And rhyming did not make something poetry. The same way that being poetry didn't mean that it had to rhyme. There were very strict rules about when and why and how certain phrases could rhyme. Japanese poetry was also not supposed to rhyme unless it was mimicking the Chinese style where there were those strict rules. So the issue of rhyme and rhythm is is very different. I'm not a literature specialist of East Asia, but I will say that, especially as it was translated into English, much of the poetic aspects that someone who spoke the language of Sanskrit that it was written in would have understood are lost on us. I will also mention too that these verse- portions of the text, they mention a lot of information that the prose portions never mention, and vice versa. For example, if you remember, the verse portions that were discussing the burning house, they talked a lot more about how horrible and condition it was before it started on fire. And the prose portion really just said, yeah, it was rotting and dirty and yeah. not that great. But the the verse portion went on forever about like how many creatures were in there and how they were all eating each other and how there were ghosts and how there was all this bad stuff going on in there.
1: Yeah. It turned really vicious at that point. Like, I yeah. was really surprised at that. It seemed like what was happening was during the prose version, they were focusing on the human world. And then during the verse portion, they added in the Naraka and hungry ghosts to the to the equation.
0: Yeah, I will say this: the um, the issue of Naraka is that there is not just one Buddhist hell. There's actually a, a great many, um, mm-hmm. including Naraka. Naraka is one of them. Oh
1: no, I thought Naraka was the term for all of them. Okay, I did not realize that
0: well that kind of changes it's kind of difficult as we've seen before these realms kind of multiply with Mahayana it starts out with just six and one of the six is Naraka but then Mahayana starts to discuss all of these hells within Naraka to the point where the worst one becomes the one that they often refer to and the worst one is Avicii hell and Naraka is like kind of sidelined to be another one so it's it's you're right to to uh, invoke that, but it's also kind of i want to offer a little bit of complication to it because the cosmology grows and grows and grows and grows as Buddhism travels through east asia but you are right it's it's meant to be representative of like the very very worst hell that you know these authors can possibly come up with it's got to have all of the worst things that you can imagine happening in it, and interestingly, all of the non-human characters or many of the non-human characters are from indian mythology so there's yakshas and kumbhanda demons and rakshas and all these other creatures and they are actually all figuring heavily in um, indian mythology and brahmanical mythology and they're kind of co-opted rhetorically by by buddhists to demonstrate in this case how awful everything is And that's not like an insult in that case to the Brahmanical tradition. These Rakshas and Kumbhanda demons, they're bad characters in Brahmanical traditions too. It's just saying like using terms that the the audience will know. The audience will know what a Kumbhanda demon is. The same way we would know what a goblin is or a vampire is or something like that. And so it makes sense to use that trope in story. to, To paint the scene, right? To show that things... In this house, were horrible. Absolutely horrible.
1: So next, well, I want to go to a couple of the terms that are used here that aren't really, that aren't translated. So the first one is Kalpa. I get from context that that's probably a unit of
0: time? It is a unit of time. Okay. It, uh, one Kalpa represents several eons, I believe. But the idea behind the term Kalpa is that it is an amount of time that the human mind cannot comprehend. It's like trying to comprehend a billion. The human mind, even completely focused, completely turned towards this task, cannot comprehend a billion of anything. Even like processing at its greatest power, it just cannot make sense of something that large. And so a Kalpa is meant to be a unit of time that is so large that you can't imagine from now to the end of it. And so oftentimes this is used because the sutra, the Lotus Sutra, is trying to semantically break you of what is comprehensible by using these giant huge numbers we've 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 seen this in other sutras where they'll say the amount of merit that you'll accrue for saying even one line of the sutra is greater than all of the sands of the Ganges in the sixty realms or something like that, all to like demonstrate that's how much you'll get but this Lotus Sutra takes it way, way further. It'll say like, it'll be immeasurable kalpas that measure greater than the immeasurable sands of the immeasurable Ganges rivers and the immeasurable 10,000 million fold world or something like that. And the purpose of that is to completely break you of conventional reality and start to get trippy and start to get kind of beyond beyond what is normally comprehensible to understand the significance and the power and the, the breadth and the awe of the sutra.
1: Okay so when i see kalpa i should mentally forever
0: pretty much like, yeah forever it's like a discrete amount of time in buddhism but it's it's a discrete amount of time that's beyond human comprehension right and then it takes several of those you'll notice that shariputra when he got his prophecy he said after immeasurable kalpas so shariputra will get to become a buddha but i should mention also that other people in the assembly get Buddha prophecies from Shakyamuni and their prophecies are shorter. So some of them say after Oof. two kalpas or after one rebirth or something like that, you'll become a Buddha. Or even in in a famous chapter, which was added very last in the last phase of the composition of the, of the sutra, there is this eight-year-old dragon girl princess. So she's a child, she's female, and she's an animal. She is... What you would think of as being, according to the Buddhist tradition, the farthest away from ever being able to reach Buddhahood because she suffers from so much karmic stuff. But without mentioning that karmic stuff, she gets a prophecy and turns into a Buddha within like an instant in one of these chapters to demonstrate how if you accept the teaching, then it's pretty much immediate about your becoming a Buddha. If you accept the teaching of the Lotus Sutra, if you uphold the Lotus Sutra or buy into the Lotus Sutra, then in that very instant, no matter what, you can become a Buddha. But also it's kind of an insult to Shariputra because yeah. he has to wait immeasurable kalpas. But then this like eight-year-old girl who is also a lizard can do it right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it seems like just another way to kick Sariputra again. Yeah. That's just mean at that point. Well, I think it is anyway. I need to not... Not be so judgmental, I guess, but
0: yeah that's that's really harsh. they do it to him a lot that that's that's a big time a moment in this sutra where he gets gobsmacked, and there's plenty others, plenty others in other Mahayana sutras where he just has to kind of be the dunce
1: There's another term that did not get any translation that I'd want to talk about. I'm going to do my best with pronouncing this Anutara samyak
0: sambodhi. Yeah, that's a great pronunciation. Um, This is a Sanskrit term that refers to what my Buddhism professor at grad school calls supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Buddhahood. So this is not just conventional enlightenment, you might say. This is not the enlightenment of the Arhat. This isn't even the enlightenment of the Bodhisattva. This isn't even the final enlightenment of a Buddha. This is a full realization of Buddhahood. It goes beyond... Any of the paths, and it is a complete and total full realization of complete Buddhahood. It goes beyond simple omniscience. It goes beyond having supernatural powers. It goes beyond having insight into everyone's karmic backstory and seeing the suchness of things and all of that stuff. It goes beyond that to be almost godlike, almost to be conceived of in the sense of the Christian God. I don't. I hesitate to make that comparison, and I, I don't want to go down that path much further. But I will say that this is a complete higher level of enlightenment and Buddhahood than we have ever seen in other sutras, and will ever see in future sutras that we read. This is the top, top, top level.
1: Gotcha. I thought that would be the case because of that term Bodhi in there. I noticed that it's like, okay, this is some form of enlightenment, but then the rest of the word doesn't parse really,
0: yeah, it's kind of best thought of as being together as one term because it it does you can kind of break it apart into its components and find modifiers for the Bodhi and you know find like a dependent clause in there, but basically the purpose of the term is to supersede the conventional four stages of awakening. we've not really discussed these, but they have come up in some of the texts that we've talked about the four stages of awakening according to the early tradition are the awakening of the stream enterer somebody who has just kind of joined up with buddhism they kind of are reading about it studying it doing the rituals but they haven't really fully become enlightened or even started to become enlightened gradually if that makes sense they're kind of part of it but they're not there yet then there's the once returner who has he or she has really attenuated ill will and sensual desires but they're still attached in a lot of ways and the once returner part implies that they're going to be reborn one more time and then there's the non-returner for whom this is your last life and you're right at the doorstep of enlightenment and then the last stage is the arhat which is the full realization of enlightenment in past sutras Bodhisattvahood has been used to supersede the Arhat. So the Arhat is enlightenment in the conventional sense of omniscience and realizing the non arising of all dharmas and things like that. And then Bodhisattvahood goes beyond that to include other sentient beings. And then beyond that, even is Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, full realized Buddhahood.
1: I want to talk a bit about how meta this sutra gets. So, this sutra talks to itself at a couple of points. Talks about itself at a couple of points. So, there's in- like instructions on who to even teach this to. Like, there's a lot of people that the sutra just is not supposed to be revealed to. And then it's talking about the merit that the sutra gives, and also the really harsh punishments for slandering
0: the sutra. So what's going on here? Yeah, the sutra is always talking about itself. And I wish I had a good reason or explanation for it, but there isn't one. There just simply isn't one. This is the only sutra that does this to this extent. It's very typical of Mahayana sutras for the ending part to be something like, If this sutra is taught, if you speak even one word of it, if you memorize even one word of it, all these good things will happen to you. If you slander it, all these bad things will happen to you. That takes up about like a paragraph at the end, and then it's over with. But this sutra, from the very beginning, is always talking about the Lotus Sutra. The book you're holding, the Lotus Sutra text in your hands, is talking about the Lotus Sutra. And it's talking about it as though that is something that is different and distinct from the text that you're holding in your hands. So the question is, in the Lotus Sutra, when the Buddha says, I'm going to preach the Lotus Sutra, I will preach the Lotus Sutra, I have preached the Lotus Sutra, whatever, when does he actually preach it? What pages are the Lotus Sutra out of the text you're holding? And there are no really good answers for that. This is a very, very meta sutra, and it's, an, it's normal for other texts to have instructions about what to do with the text, but not nearly to the extent of this one. As you remember, there's all these instructions about people who have certain levels of understanding. There's all these different levels of critique that you must be willing to endure for preaching it, and then there's all these awful things that'll happen if you slander it. Not only will you be like ugly and disabled— And all these other issues, but you'll also be like ostracized socially, or you'll be reborn as like a beast. And you'll be known for being like particularly hungry and vicious and all these, I mean, it's just bad. Everything that happens to somebody who doesn't uphold this sutra is awful. And luckily, it's impermanent, so you won't be disabled and sick and gross forever, according to this sutra. But it is giving you a lot of punishment for not upholding the teaching or for slandering the teaching. And so one reason for this potentially, the reason at least a reason for why there's all these detailed punishments for upholding the sutras and instructions about where and when and to whom to preach it to, is because it's responding to its own critics. This kind of speaks to the authorship. It's kind of commonly held nowadays to think that this was authored by a mix of like urban center Mahayana people and what they might call forest Mahayana people. So if we go back to like the sociology of Buddhism back in India, back at the time of the authorship of this text, there was this kind of urban rural divide, like the urban monks, they lived in conventional monasteries and they did the sutras and the practices and the rituals for the community. And that's kind of how they developed a trippier, but also more lay people centric type of Buddhism. And then there were the forest ones who were devoted to solitary practice and renunciation and all that stuff. They were kind of more closely related to the Theravada tradition or the early schools traditions. And so it was kind of authored by a mix of those people who expected that the other schools would be highly critical of this text and regard it as being apocryphal. And so they kind of address that by saying like, well, if you critique this text, you're going to go to the worst hell imaginable. The discouraging critique of the text in the text itself. And that explains why there's like all these punishments and all these instructions about where and when and how and who to preach it to. But what it does not answer and what there is no good answer for, what is up to interpretation, is when does the Lotus Sutra actually start? Because in the text, it is always saying, I will preach the sutra, I have preached the sutra, I do preach the... Every verb you can imagine, every tense you can imagine. It's not ever clear when the Buddha is actually preaching the Lotus Sutra itself. It's highly up to interpretation and has been interpreted by a lot of Buddhists in East Asia in different ways over thousands of years, where and when the sutra actually begins in relation to the text that you're holding.
1: So we've brought it up in talking about this, but a big part of this text is the parable of the burning house yeah this this entire section was first of all it was interesting to me how very explicit the speaker is about how what they're doing is you know a parable trying to get to a deeper meaning or uh, or being explicit that you know this is skillful means like this is very open it is about how metaphorical it's trying to be.
0: It's good that you pick that up because these chapters two through nine are covered in these parables. Um, this is the most famous one that's the most often cited when teaching the sutra, but others include like the medicinal herbs parable, or the parable of the jewel in the coat, or in the jacket, the parable of the phantom city. Lots of famous parables come out of this that are famous in Buddhism and Buddhist culture. And from the get-go, from chapter two, which is allegedly the very first chapter to ever be composed of this sutra, that chapter is all about skillful means and about the use of parable and simile. It's a defense or an apologesis for skillful means. This is another point where Theravada and Mahayana differ at times. So the issue of skillful means that is up for debate is, if you tell a big long story, and it's got a message and a meaning that you want to convey but it didn't really happen or if it's like a cause and condition or a situation and you say something that reaches the desired outcome but is not actually true in either case is it a falsehood and this parable speaks to that and that skillful means chapter speaks to that the chapter right before this it says no if you tell a story or if you say something that's not true to get to the desired outcome like a white lie it's not actually a falsehood however theravada will say for the most part at least that skillful means is actually someone trying to mislead you and it's not very skillful because it doesn't really address the issue of someone not being of a capacity to learn what you're trying to convey to them in a complete way yet and it also doesn't really deal well with buddhist issues on language which are that you should never say things that are superfluous and you should never say things that are flowery and fictional and like a waste of breath if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and i think that the skillful means thing has kind of opened the door to a lot of east asian buddhist literature and culture that we would have never had before so i appreciate that it exists but i can see if you're just looking at the five ten precepts the ones about what you say are very very clear and explicit like don't tell lies and don't waste words and don't say things just to fill up space in the air things like that those are very real and strict and specific and obviously mahayana has redefined them or changed them or changed their interpretation of them in order to make this skillful means teaching really work
1: yeah the entire text seems is layering things on top of each other to Bring things further away from the Theravada texts. Like Mm -hmm. A lot of this seems to just not jive with earlier things we've talked about. A lot of the extremes that we're seeing in this text seem to be going against the idea of the middle path that we established in earlier episodes.
0: I think that sometimes it does, but other times it's trying to even redefine it in some way. So you are right to say that this does kind of strike a very stark contrast from the earlier texts. Some of the ways are, like you've said, the big numbers. Others are, for example, the narrative aspect of this. We've only looked at this one chapter, and there's a lot of frame narrative packed into this chapter. And in the parable itself, there's a lot of story packed in. Between the two stories, there's a lot going on here. There's what's happening in the assembly, and there's what's happening in each parable. And it's, there's a lot going on in terms of strict narrative. And the earlier texts are not set up that way. The earlier texts are set up as if someone was looking at a drawn out table or chart and was reading it off in a formulaic way such that it could be transcribed and made sense of visually. And I don't want to say that to imply that the earlier texts first existed as diagrams. That's not the case at all. But it's meant to be that way to create like a matrix that can be memorized and can be applied for practice. And this one is not like that at all. This one is not meant to be a matrix or a chart or a list of lists or anything like that. It doesn't look at reality and then put names onto things and categories onto those things, et cetera. But the middle way discussion and the middle way conversation is complicated with regards to this text because there there were some of the Majiamaka school, where that comes from, who accepted this text and some who didn't. And there were some from other schools around the Madhyamaka school who had different opinions. It's very, very dubious how to approach this from like a middle way perspective, because the extreme numbers might be, they might seem like excess, but they're kind of rhetorical. And rhetoric does not really, in a Mahayana way, fall under the category of middle way. And at the same time, Mahayana has their own definition of middle way that is different from that of the Theravada. The Mahayana might critique the Theravada for not living the middle way because they renounce their householding life and they go from you know, having to, ha- to not having. They go from extreme attachment to extreme non-attachment or detachment in some cases. They might critique them for detachment and having a desire to run away from chaos, as, as if that might help their enlightenment better. But then the same thing can be turned back at the Mahayana, and they can say, well, the fact that you emphasize bodhisattva work in the householding life, in the attached, suffering, chaotic life, that's an extreme desire to stay plugged into the world. And so going down the middle path argument one way or the other for this, it's kind of complicated without having the Majiamaka texts and the commentaries on the sutra in front of you because people apply that argument kind of like a catch-all in sometimes because it can really be formulated to mean what you want it to mean in the moment.
1: Let's talk about the offerings and prophecies to and up from the Buddha. So at one point in this a lot of people end up offering their robes to the Buddha. What's the significance there?
0: Yeah so the Lotus Sutra is kind of carrying on this other It's never been explicitly stated, but it has always happened in other sutras. In order for one person to become a Buddha, they have to do two things. I guess you could really call it three things. You have to meet a Buddha in your lifetime. You have to make an offering to a Buddha in your lifetime. And you have to receive a prophecy from that Buddha that you're going to become a Buddha. And so this speaks to an issue that we were discussing before, before we were recording this episode, which is The text is trying to solve the problem of never being able to talk to Shakyamuni. So we currently live in a post-Shakyamuni world. Regardless of if he was historical or not, it's widely accepted that he has been dead for 2,500 years or more. And in that regard, we're faced with a problem. If we want to reach enlightenment, we cannot hear the teaching from Shakyamuni himself. All we have left are these texts, which we are to treat as relics of the Buddha as the remains of the Buddha. That's all we have left. And unfortunately, language is is insufficient for communicating enlightenment from one person to the other. That's pretty much widely agreed upon between all of the schools of Buddhism, is that words can't capture it. If someone has never seen the color purple, then you can't explain to them what the color purple looks like. They have to see it for themselves in order to know, in order to have an idea of what it is. And so in that regard, what do we do? Like we're kind of screwed in that in that case. Everyone mm-hmm. who lives post Tachakamuni is screwed. Well, this text tries to solve that by emphasizing the immeasurable karmic backstory that everybody has, and also bringing the issue of memory into things. And so Shariputra gets his Buddha—he gets his prophecy of Buddhahood because what the Buddha is saying is that you have already made your offerings and you've already met your Buddha and gotten your prophecy and you've just forgotten it right? This happens in the first chapter of the text as well. The first chapter of the text, and I mean chapter one, which was added after chapters two through nine. (laughs) It's kind of confusing. Oh boy. Chapter one of the text that we're holding, not the very first earliest one, but chapter one, Maitreya, the Buddha of the future, he's watching the Buddha getting ready to preach. The Buddha is actually about to preach the Sutra of Immeasurable Meanings. And Maitreya is like, "What's, what's happening? I don't know what's going on. And Manjushri has to say, don't you remember, the Buddha always does this when he's about to preach the Sutra of Immeasurable Meanings. And then Maitreya is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember now. So even though that Sutra had not been preached before, Maitreya had forgotten because that was his karma, right? So Shariputra so had forgotten as well. The argument of the text is that everybody who reads it is either prophesied to become a Buddha or has forgotten that they are prophesied to become a Buddha. Either you know that you are going to become one, or you just are still going to become one, but you don't remember. So you don't believe that you're going to be. And that's the issue that Shariputra faces, and there's a lot of other characters in here that face that same issue. The issue of memory in the Lotus Sutra is huge. And the offering of the robes and stuff like that is just to represent that the Buddha had preached something important, and so everybody made an offering to commemorate that teaching. That always kind of happens, right? The thing about the Lotus Sutra that's similar to all other sutras is that whenever the Buddha says something kind of big, the world responds in some way, right? There's all this music and there's all these robe offerings and everybody, a certain portion of the crowd reaches enlightenment and there's like earthquakes and storms and lightning and thunder and all this other stuff. The world is kind of responsive to what the Buddha says because what he's saying is so big and important.
1: I guess that also explains the need for this primordial Buddha that you mentioned earlier. If the Buddha is is dead and the prophecy is still a required part of it, then having this primordial Buddha that never goes away ends up being
0: useful, a utility thing. Exactly, yeah. And as we will read in later chapters, the text itself gives you your prophecy. So it solves the problem kind of completely, other Mahayana Sutras solve the problem differently. They argue, well, everybody has a little Buddha inside of them. They have a little bit of the Buddha or a little bit of the nature of the Buddha inside of them. That's how they can reach enlightenment. Other texts also say, well, we are originally enlightened. We are enlightened going back infinite lifespans, but our karma and our kind of falling off of our practice is what causes us to not be enlightened right now. And so we have to do something about that. But this text says, not only does it say there is this primordial Buddha who preaches this sutra infinitely all the time, but it also says to the reader that you are becoming a Buddha. You are going to become a Buddha. And that's why there's a lot of people in East Asia who are very strong proponents of this text, because they got their prophecy from it. Because it says that if you read it and accept it, you're going to become a Buddha. However, it also says if you read it and don't accept it, you will not become a Buddha. So there's an issue of faith, or I guess you could say like belief, based on being convinced by the argument, which is critical here. If you're not convinced by the argument, then you're not going to reap the benefits of what that argument implies. And if you are convinced, then you've already reached the benefit, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I'm i super uncomfortable with that just because of how much it. Echoes the parts about Christianity that I can't deal with. I I don't like that.
0: It definitely edges up on some uncomfortable topics because I want to emphasize it is not blind faith that we're talking about here, but there is sort of like a either you believe it and good things happen or you don't and bad things happen. But I will say that the origin, or I guess the agent of those good or bad things happening, is actually the believer or non believer not some sort of like universal enforcer. So the bad things that happen to a person if they don't believe in God are being done by God, according to the doctrine. But the bad things that happen to a person who doesn't believe in the Lotus Sutra happen to that person because they don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in their ability to become a Buddha. And so therefore, they won't become a Buddha until they change that belief. So the agent is different, and there's also flexibility. Beliefs can change, and therefore, that's kind of the solution. The argument that the Lotus Sutra is making is essentially that everyone, all sentient beings, will become Buddhas given enough infinite time. It's just that, you know, there are those who believe they won't, but don't worry, eventually, they will believe that they will be Buddhas, and therefore, they'll become Buddhas. It's kind of like saying there's really, we think that there's two outcomes to this where a being becomes a buddha or doesn't but actually there's one it's where every being becomes a buddha or they believe that they're not going to be one but then they believe that they're going to be one and then become one so ultimately it's kind of speaking to like the ultimate end of all sentient beings path is becoming a buddha
1: it's also very victim blamey though it is
0: we've discussed
1: well like we've discussed before and like uh you know I've got a couple of those afflictions that are have been discussed, and I'm really not keen on being told I that's there because of how I believe.
0: Yeah, it's not very good. And unfortunately, like, I think that it's a little bit worse, a little bit more insulting, that the reason that it's even in there is not because that's something that Buddhism would uphold and like beat people over the head with. It's because it's responding to the critics of the text, which haven't critiqued it yet.
1: Yeah, it's very defensive. Uh yeah. it's so defensive that it's almost offensive. Like it
0: and it is cutting off the ability to critique it. Exactly, yeah. And if you can even believe it, in East Asia this gets more extreme. <laughs> like Oh, I can believe that. Yeah. There are there are those believers of the Lotus Sutra who especially like in the early modern era this kind of is edging into something I'm working on for my thesis they believe that basically the teaching of the sutra requires you to forcibly proselytize. So, you know, whenever someone says Buddhism doesn't proselytize, for the most part, they're right. But Lotus Sutra Buddhism is highly, highly, highly into proselytizing. Lotus Sutra Buddhism and Lotus Sutra Buddhists, they proselytize all the time. And it's commonly held that there's two ways to do that. One way is soft and diplomatic and rhetorical and chill and patient and the other way is kind of like hardcore and aggressive and very strict and these are up to interpretation as to like is the tougher one meant to be like beating somebody up or is it meant to be like being aggressive verbally and rhetorically or is it meant to be like scaring somebody into believing into the lotus sutra and because there's that flexibility in the interpretation of the concepts there are those who do all of those and Those people, those figures, especially in the early modern era where there's a lot of kind of war going on in East Asia, opium wars in China, Asia-Pacific war gearing up in Japan, there are those that take the actual violence side and scaring people into believing. And they believe that you're supposed to scare people into believing the teaching of the sutra, which is that everybody will become a Buddha and that the Buddha has an immeasurable lifespan. And I, I kind of think that's kind of ridiculous. That concept is self defeating exactly to
1: me, right what it's hard it the I'm trying to be sensitive about it, but that one a
0: lot of this text is rife for enabling abuse it is and it, and it gets used to abuse in history in at times, and it's very unfortunate,
1: yeah, so At this point, we're getting into details that I wanted to ask about. So let's just go through these as I wrote them down. Absolutely. Um, Let's see. So what's this idea of no outflows that gets brought up several times towards the beginning?
0: That speaks to the four stages of awakening that we mentioned earlier. A stream enterer, which is the first stage, can come and go as they please. So outflows happen according to Buddhist doctrine because someone... They're creating a karmic connection with Buddhism, and it's a good thing. But their karma is not good enough that they commit to it and are able to reach the next stage of once-returner or non-returner or arhat. And so someone who has reached this or that with no outflows, it's someone who has reached a level of understanding and learning that has the characteristic of non-retrogression so it's being changed so fundamentally that you cannot ever possibly change back right so okay so that's the point of no return it's it's kind of that but um there is like a hard point of no return in tor- in terms of like enlightenment but it's it's kind of like a smaller scale version of that so the point of no return for buddhism there's there's a couple of different ways to think about it one way to think about it is you have studied and become so close to enlightenment that you will definitely reach enlightenment with no chance of not reaching enlightenment. Eventually. Eventually, yes. But there's another way to think about it, which is like, have you ever learned something or experienced something that literally you will never be the same again because of it? It's kind of pivotal in your character. This no outflows thing, an individual outflow could be one of those things one of those things that you experience and you can go back to being the same afterwards. Most things that we deal with in our day-to-day lives are things that do not affect us so hugely that we're not the same person afterwards. But every once in a while, something big happens. And in this case, Shariputra, he was realizing non-retrogression and stuff. He did get his Buddha prophecy and he did, he was told this, but he was also referring to learning something that is so transformative of his worldview that he can never, ever, ever go back to thinking those, according to the text, not my argument, but according to the text, those dummy, stupid Theravada teachings. Right. So at one point, they're
1: talking about prophecies about the era of correct law, which is supposed to last for 32 small kalpas, and then the era of counterfeit law which will last for another 32 small kalpas, and then doesn't expound on what any of that means so what does that mean correct law counterfeit law
0: yeah so the correct law is this time where it's the stage in the telephone game where the message is preserved right so for those who have not played the telephone game right you whisper something into somebody's ear and then they whisper it into somebody else's who's next to them Very bad game to play during the COVID pandemic, but it's basically to demonstrate how like messages get lost in translation. And so the sutra is preached, right? And for 32 small kalpas, everybody who tells it to their friends is telling it correctly. And then after that, it kind of devolves and it gets distorted somehow. It's the stage of the telephone game where the message changes, That counterfeit law is where the people who are telling the sutra to their friends are not telling it correctly, and they're spreading kind of a a misrepresentation of the center of the teaching of that sutra. This is something that has been introduced, I think, for the first time in the Lotus Sutra compared to other uh, Mahayana Sutras and Theravada Sutras. In this case, it's referring strictly to the Lotus Sutra itself. But there are other cases in the Lotus Sutra where it's referring to the age of the Dharma, Right so it's not talking just about how the lotus sutra is communicated but how the entire dharma is communicated. I don't know if anybody that is listening is familiar with this but there are typically in the buddhist the mahayana buddhist cosmology three stages of time. The first stage is this like correct dharma. The second stage is this counterfeit dharma. And then there's a third stage called the final stage of the dharma. In Japanese it's called mappo or in Chinese it's called mofa It's this stage where the Buddha is long gone and there's been a shrinkage of the sangha, the community of Buddhists. And a lot of the teachings that are being circulated are incorrect. And it's supposedly the the stage where it is the most difficult to reach enlightenment out of any other stage, right? So it's the easiest and the community is the strongest and the teachings are the strongest in the first stage. And then they get harder in the second stage. And then in the third stage, they're the hardest, and you have to work the hardest and do the most and struggle the most for the longest time to reach enlightenment. And that model becomes super, super central to Mahayana Buddhism, especially in Japan. Essentially, Mappo presents another problem. It's like another layer on the post shakyamuni world problem. And that problem is that not only is Shakyamuni gone, we can't hear the teaching from him, and language is bad, but also there's all these incorrect teachings circulating and also the community is shrunk and it's just not a good time. And so they come up with a lot of individual solutions. There's a Japanese Buddhist reformer named Nichiren who is a devotee of the Lotus Sutra, a radical devotee of the Lotus Sutra. And I say radical not to mean that he was like a a terrorist of his time, but He was exiled and nearly executed because he was so radically into this Lotus Sutra. He argues it's hard to become enlightened. There's just not really anything we can do about Mapo. So he created this phrase um, called the Daimoku, which is the title of the Lotus Sutra. And he argues that the entire teaching of the Sutra is captured in that title. And so not everybody can read, not everybody can practice to become ordained, so what they can do is just say the, nam, the the daimoku, which goes namu myoho renge kyo. Everybody can say that. So therefore, that phrase captures the entire teaching and is therefore like the right practice for the right time of mappo, where it's the very, very hardest it could possibly be to reach enlightenment.
1: And so these stages are each 32 small kalpas. Is there any particular significance to a small kalpa as uh, opposed to a regular one that I should be aware of?
0: Yeah. So in this case, actually, these numbers change with every Buddha. So some people who receive their prophecy, their correct law age will be eight kalpas or their counterfeit one will be 12 small kalpas or something like that. There's all different times. And the difference in those times is meant to establish a hierarchy. Shariputra has a very long time, not only for the correct law, which is good, very respectful to him, but also for the counterfeit law. He has a very long time. Some Buddhas have a long time of correct law and a short time of counterfeit law. It's it's different because what is the implication is that that Buddha will become a Buddha in their own respective realm. In this case, for Shariputra, it's going to be free from stain. And so that realm is kind of thought of as different from here. We are in Shakyamuni's realm right now, and that realm is different and far away, and it's going to have different rules. But in this case, those numbers are not significant here. But this three stages of the Dharma, not just of like the Lotus Sutra, but of the Dharma itself, true law, counterfeit law, and final stage, those are periods of 500 years, and the The correct law lasted for 500 years after the life of the Buddha. And then there's debate about this date in East Asia, but widely held in Japan, at least, that from that 500 year period up to the year 1052 or 552, depending on who you ask, um, that was the counterfeit law. And then after that, either since 552 or 1052, we've been in this final stage. So since the last thousand years, we've been in the, the bad one, the worst one. And that's why there's been a lot of reform of Buddhism.
1: Okay. One question I had, what, is there any significance to the different types of carts mapping to the different types of Buddhahood?
0: It's good that you bring up the carts. Yeah. We should discuss some of the symbology of the parable a little bit. So even though it's kind of expressly mentioned in the sutra, the father of the children in the burning house is the Buddha, the children represent all sentient beings, the burning house is the world of samsara, and in this case the goat cart is the arhat path, the deer cart is the pratyekabuddha path, the ox cart is the bodhisattva path, and then the white ox cart is the special buddhahood path. So first I should mention something about these like correlations to the different paths. The goat cart the goat is not really good at pulling things around on a farm. The goat is not meant for that. That's not its, its purpose as livestock. And so that's why it's the Arhat. They're thinking of the Arhat in terms of like, you only get enlightenment for yourself, so you can't really... We can't yoke a so cart. So it's two. another
1: put down, kind of.
0: Yes, exactly. The deer cart being the Prachyaka Buddhas, I'm sure there's a doctrinal explanation for it, but I'll tell you this, it doesn't make any sense to me. And the reason why is because the Pratyeka Buddhas don't make any sense to me. The Pratyeka Buddhas are Buddhas. It's in the name. They are Buddhas. And so why is their enlightenment less than Shakyamuni's or less than the prophesied Buddhas of the text? They are already Buddhas. And unless it's explicitly mentioned in the sutra that there's a hierarchy between fully realized Buddhas, and it's not mentioned, I promise, I've read the whole thing, then that doesn't really make a lot of sense. This group is never really named. They're very rarely present in the assembly and nothing is ever said about them. They are the solitary ones that live in the forest and they attain enlightenment through realizing cause and effect. That's all that we know about them. I I have to assume they're kind of theoretical. When they're thinking about how Buddhism fits into the real world, they're thinking, okay, there are going to be those who hear the teaching and those who don't. But you have to think that the Buddha didn't hear the Buddha's teaching, or at least that's what they thought in the early school's doctrine. So he he came to enlightenment on his own, so others must be able to come to enlightenment on their own. And these are the Pratyaka Buddhas. But they don't make sense.
1: Based on what I've heard you talk about them, it sounds like in this you know parable of the burning house... The actual correct way to represent the Pratekya Buddhas would be the children who wander out of the house on their own without the Buddha's, without the rich man, the father's prompting. You're exactly right about that. Right, so I don't get the deer card either. But
0: what? Well, and the thing is, too, like, the deer makes sense because their deer are solitary and you can't yoke anything to them as well. They don't help on the farm. But I mean, that's I mean, we're stretching here. I mean, we're doing we're doing interpretation 15, 1600 years after the text is even translated into Chinese, probably about 2000 years since it was written. And so it's just really hard with that group. But you're exactly right. Like they would be the ones that would walk out on their own. And then
1: ox cart I get because like an ox is a actual plow animal. And so they're saying that the Bodhisattva path, which is the path that is emphasized by the Mahayana Buddhists, is the best path because it's an ox instead of a goat.
0: Yeah, you can. The ox can carry more stuff, right? The ox can pull a cart full of people, and a and a goat can't. And it's important to note too that like the Bodhisattva cart and the Buddha cart are both oxen. Mm-hmm. So there is still a clear hierarchy in the text of Bodhisattva over. Arhat, of Mahayana over Theravada. But still, in its own way, it does say that the Bodhisattva path is, like, insufficient. It's not fully there yet. So this white ox cart with all the treasures is the Buddha vehicle. And the way it's described in the parable is that it can carry all kinds and tons of stuff. And that's the idea, is that this cart is the one that everybody, and I mean every sentient being, and... According to later East Asian interpretations, every non-sentient being is on. And so it's, it's the big one. And the reason why there's treasures on it and not on the other ones is that the treasure is kind of like the benefit of being a Buddha, like the karmic retribution in a good way of realizing Buddhahood. Those are all the treasures of the, of the white ox cart or the Buddha vehicle. Now, this parable opens up an important question. Is the Buddha vehicle subsuming all the other three vehicles, or is it a separate vehicle altogether? That is to say, are those who are on the ox cart, or the goat cart, or the deer cart, are they not on the white ox cart, or are they? Now, there's the reason why one might argue that they are all on the Buddha vehicle is because the Buddha gives them prophecies. The Buddha gives prophecies to People who are on the goat cart and people who are on the ox cart and people who are on the, he doesn't really give prophecies to people who are on the deer cart, but they're Buddhas. So let's assume (laughs) that they are. So you could say, you can make an argument that they are all on the Buddha vehicle, but you could also argue that actually none of these people were ever on these separate carts and they were only pretending to be as an expedient means to enlighten people. So the argument could be made based on this Sutra that Shariputra was never an Arhat. He was only pretending to be one so that he could play this character in the Lotus Sutra and and help other people realize the truth of universal Buddhahood as a cause and condition or a and parable. And so in that argument, you could say there is actually a separate Buddha vehicle, but that's up to interpretation. Just
1: an odd turn of phrase that i noted at one point at one point he's talking about flower glow thus come one
0: that's the buddha that shariputra will be whenever he reaches buddhahood
1: the actions of flower glow buddha will all be as i have said the most saintly and venerable of two-legged beings what where's where's this two-legged coming from
0: is that just an
1: odd turn of phrase or is there something going on there
0: I think that these little epithets are a dime a dozen in Brahmanical texts, and that's where they kind of come from. So uh, okay. among two-legged beings, the only two-legged beings that these people are really referring to are humans. So basically saying the best person, the best of all people, the most saintly of all people. I will say this in the text. You'll never say or see the Buddha say that this person will be the most saintly among the four-legged beings or the six-legged ones or the, or the eight-legged ones never happens it's only two-legged ones so it's just another way of saying that out of all the human beings this is the best one this is the one who is the most enlightened and the most the best at practicing and the best at all this teaching and good deeds and stuff it's kind of like saying a king among men if that makes sense gotcha
1: okay If I were to go through and ask every single little term that I noticed that I wanted an explanation on, we'd probably be here all night. But I think I've got the main ones that stuck out to me. So is there anything else that we need to talk about that I haven't brought up that you would like to?
0: No, I think that we are all set. I think that um, with this sutra, we will be reading more chapters and discussing for just as long because this is a lot. I've had an entire yeah. graduate school seminar just on this text and its influence in Japanese culture, and there is just so, so much that is packed into this text, because it is unlike any other Buddhist text out there, completely unlike any other one. So it merits a lot of discussion and a lot of reading, and we'll definitely be doing more of that in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This was really fun to read, Like, it, difficult, but it, in a good way.
0: Good. I'm glad that you had a good time with it. And I hope that everybody yeah. had a good time listening to it and listening to our debrief of it.
1: All right. Well, if that's it, I think we should go ahead and bring this to a close. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we will see you
0: next time. Thank you for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer.
1: And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of
0: hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time.
1: Thank you very much.